0: When I was a child, there was a TV commercial for Smarties, and it was a song, and the tune was that old Vaudeville, not Vaudeville, I guess a music hall, British music hall, is Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor When You Leave It on the bedpost Overnight? You know, da 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 da
1: but there's, there's no difference in flavor in Smarties between the red or the green or yellow or orange? No,
0: not at all. Not at all. Interesting. But you do have to save the red ones for last. Do you right. suck them very slowly? Do you eat them very fast? <laughs> eat that candy-covered chocolate, but tell me what I ask. When you eat your Smarties, do you eat the red ones last? Da.
1: Hey, gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. This podcast is part two of an interview with Brian Train. We'll continue our discussion with a question about the reaction he's received for his latest prototypes, his pantzooka at Burning Man, and his top five or seven most influential games on insurgencies.
0: So you were wondering what kind of reaction I'd had about all these things. Uh, everybody's been coming by uh, my table and looking at the China game. And uh, the other three have been mostly sitting in my bag <laughs> since then. And I've been telling people about them, but, you know, nobody's really all that interested. I mean, partly people aren't all that interested in questions of urban insurgency Um you know, no Certainly how. not as much
1: as you are, Brian. Uh, no, no, right. and you know, and you know, what the heck? That's, let your, pe- that's your thing, yeah.
0: Absolutely, and you know, let people enjoy things. Um, and uh, I guess part of it too is uh, the way I kind of prefer, like when I when I'm working on an idea for a game, I will often put it in some kind of generic, made-up city red versus blue kind of thing as just as a test bed for the concepts to see how well they work and then maybe later i'll give it some kind of an historical gloss like one of the first games i, pu- I uh, designed long ago was called power play and it was about a uh, uh, coup d'etat uh, you know a bunch of people plotting a coup d'etat in the capital city of a made-up country and it was okay you know it was interesting and it played really quickly and you know that kind of thing but it wasn't until a year or two ago that i decided to give uh that game a kind of a, a little bit of an update and put some more variation into it and most importantly give it an historic gloss and so uh the historical setting i gave it was the coup in santiago in 1973 that unseated salvador allende and uh ended uh democracy in um In Chile for many years. Um, So that was interesting. You know, that got a little bit more interest, I think, certainly than my generic, you know, made up setting.
1: But who knows? You know, I think in the end, um, first of all, we all need our special interests to provide a variety of different games to the public. So there's, you know, we, you know, I'm obsessed on the American Revolution. That doesn't mean that it's sane or reasonable. The other thing is, uh, I think, it, who knows what what would be a popular game if you would have said, thirty years ago, to me as a war gamer, that we're going to have the greatest World War II or World War One game, right? Paths of Glory come out and it's going to be a wild success and everyone's going to love it and it's going to be the standard by which many other games are measured. You would have said, Nah, World War One, I, I don't think so. Yeah, right? that's right. And then, and then you say. Well, what about the, uh, you know, the, the structure or the, or the uh, conflict in Colombia mm-hmm. And uh, what Volco did with Andean Abyss, a four-player game on the conflict in and I would have said, eh, probably not. Yeah. But, but you, you play those games and you fall in love and, and uh, it doesn't, the
0: topic then becomes very interesting. That's true. And it was at Consum World Expo in 2010 uh, that I was sitting in the big ballroom uh, doing a play test of Andean Abyss with uh, Joel Toppin and that was where I met uh, Barry Setzer actually and uh, it was uh, really interesting and I thought this guy vocal is really onto something and uh, it wasn't until you know, a couple of years afterwards that the game was published and everything. Then Volko uh, actually name-checked me in the playbook as my work <laughs> having given him some, some of the inspiration. I mean, that's what's so wonderful about Volko is he's so generous and unsparing uh, with his uh, praise and his encouragement and his thoughtfulness about what when people come to him with their ideas. And if he has ever found anything useful in other people's works, he is... You know, just a prince about, you know, uh, giving names and giving credit where it's due. Right. Which is wonderful. Absolutely. No, yeah. he's, a, he's a role model in, in all those ways. Yeah. So uh, you have some
1: interesting relationships with other designers uh, that we've talked about in the past. For example, jo- <laughs> Joe Miranda. And you are a curious uh, odd couple, I think, uh, to some <laughs> extent. But you have been friends for a long time. Yes. And interestingly enough, have spent some time at Burning Man. yes. Yes, it's uh, true. Yeah. So, so, th- how did that come about? And I want to hear about these trips to Burning Man.
0: Well, um, I I started writing articles for Joe Miranda in the early '90s, about 1993 or so. Um, I wrote an article on urban guerrilla warfare uh, on uh, for him for strategy and tactics. I can't even remember what number issue that was. It was long ago. Anyways. I think early 90, late 1993 or early 1994. Uh, there was, uh, in the, in, from 1990 to 1992, I was living in Japan and uh, doing the teach English bit. I was working at a, a Japanese school board. So it was actually a hire of uh, their uh, municipal government. And while I was there, I struck up a correspondence with a guy called Dave Chance, uh, who was working for Aramco in Dharan, Saudi Arabia and this was at the time of the first Gulf War and uh, I arrived in Japan the day that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and uh, I left uh, you know two years later but I struck up this co- uh, correspondence with Dave Chance because he had uh, put an, uh, responded to an ad I put in command magazine uh, wanting to you know uh, talk to other people about play by play-by-mail, that kind of thing. I almost said play-by-email, but of course this is 1990, pre-internet for sure. Um, Although it's interesting to note that uh, Arabian Nightmare Kuwait War, that special issue of strategy and tactics that Jim Dunnegan and Austin Bay put together, is probably the first war game that was designed, developed, and produced, which is generally put together over the internet using the Genie message service which really really dates it but any, anyway that's 1990-91 and that's all that people had at the time but that was the only way to get something like, th- like that done so quickly so that um, you know Dunegan and, and Austin Bay started work on it in August of 1990 and they had copies were thudding into people's mailboxes at the time of Operation Desert Storm six months later so pretty remarkable and uh, uh, anyway, um, all that being said, this is play-by-mail. So Dave and I started writing each other uh, back and forth. Now, Dave was a war gamer, and we did some of that, but we spent a lot more time just writing letters to each other about anything and everything. Dave was also an amateur writer, you know, a historical writer. Um, he uh, wrote some very good articles. Anyway, Dave put me in touch with Joe, Uh, because uh, Joe had asked Dave to write an article on him for him on some subject I I can't recall Uh, but Dave didn't wasn't interested in doing it so he said Joe you need to contact this Brian train guy cuz he would probably be interested in doing it and that's how I first got in touch with Joe And so I started writing this article for him. Uh, I wrote this article for him on urban guerrilla warfare. And uh, that was the start of many articles that I wrote for Joe over the years. And that was in 1993. And at the end of 1997, uh, I was uh, run over by a car and... uh, yeah, it was a, I was walked into a crosswalk uh, in uh, the one street over from my, from my home, and uh, somebody who wasn't paying attention uh, saw me too late, and they were kind of swerving as they, hit, uh, as they hit me, and they hit me with the side of the car. Now, if she had hit me a little harder, I would have been bounced away, you know, rolled away and if she'd been going slower she would have stopped in time as it was, she was going fast enough to knock me off my feet and my leg went under her car uh, and uh, crushed my leg so to this day I have a big steel rod uh, with a bunch of screws in it uh, inside my leg um, it looks in the x-ray it looks like somebody left a garden rake in there and of course every time I fly you know like coming down here to Consul World Expo I always get the full security ballet uh, because the metal detector goes off Anyway, that was uh it took me several years to get out from under that. Uh a lot of ins- a lot of surgeries, a lot of this and that, you know, a lot of, you know, personal physical and mental pain. And uh in 2002, um I was pretty much healed, you know, medically healed, and I settled with the insurance company and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I remember walking out of the, uh, the lawyer's office thinking, well, okay, that part of it is done, but it doesn't really feel finished. And as part of, you know, I guess my Get Well program, since I was now able to travel and do things, I didn't have all these things, you know, hanging off my leg and surgeries and stuff, was to go to Burning Man. Because I had read about Burning Man in an old uh, issue of Wired magazine that Bruce Sterling, the science fiction writer, wrote uh, a few years ago, so I thought, oh, this looks like something I might want to get into one day, and uh, um, just we talked to some other people, uh, particularly a, a friend of mine who I had lived in uh, lived in the same town in Japan as I had back in the in 1990. And he was going to Burning Man, so you know we all decided to go to Burning Man. And I asked Joe if he wanted to go. This is 2002. So um, I flew down to Los Angeles, where Joe lives, and uh, we met up and we put all our stuff together and uh, met up with another friend of his, and uh, we all went to Burning Man together, and uh, it was pretty remarkable. I don't know what your listeners may know or think about Burning Man, um, I haven't been for 12 years. I, I went for five years, um, and I, each year for five years, uh, but I stopped going some time ago because it was just getting too big and too hard to get a, a grip on things, uh, just too large. Uh, I don't like being part of extremely large crowds, and that's kind of what it was turning into. But it was certainly nothing like it, you know, just to see all the art and, uh, you know, strange people wandering around and that kind of thing and uh, they say that uh, one thing that you find a lot of at Burning Man is coincidences Uh, and um, when I was down there about the third or fourth day that I was down there I went to a camp full of people from Victoria which is my hometown and uh, there was someone I knew vaguely in there uh, but they were like the other side of the encampment so I went over to say hi you know, and meet this person. And uh, I, I found her at the theme camp, and I was talking to her, telling the story of, you know, here I am. I got run over, all this kind of thing. And this woman walked up behind me and said, uh, I don't know how you're going to take this, but I'm Sarah. Sarah was the woman who ran over me. Wow. <laughs> so <clears throat> we just stood there staring at each other, and someone in the in the background said, well, what's this about? And uh, the person I'd come to see said, well, Sarah ran over Brian with her car. <laughs> and um, and Sarah, you know, she like, we hadn't seen each other since the night of the accident because, of, you know, lawyers said, you know, look, you two can't talk to each other or anything like that. So, you know, we hadn't seen each other in four years, you know, the night of the accident and everything. And, you know, we were reconciled right away because you know she wasn't paying attention or anything like that but she wasn't drunk uh she didn't hit and run or anything like that she was very contrite about it as a matter of fact she was a nurse a student nurse at the time that she you know of the accident and in the last four years she had become an accomplished surgical nurse herself and has gone on to be a teacher of nurses uh, and nursing herself so you know what a way to get closure Uh, to face this person and and just get closure to the incident on this dusty lake bed 900 miles from the place where it happened. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. So anyway, that was was the big... Tell tell me it ended in a hug of some kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Actually, you know, we haven't really talked to each other since. You know, the incidents closed. We both moved on with our lives. Oh, what a
1: healthy outcome, yeah. Uh,
0: I think so. And she's gone on, as I said, to a, a great career in nursing and helping people. And uh, my life was jolted onto a very different track as a result of the injury. And it's, yeah, I I've, I think I've done very well. Hasn't always been easy, but uh, it put my life on a, on a different but much better track. But that was the f- one wonderful thing that happened uh while we were at Burning Man. The other wonderful thing was the story of the fill it in. The Pantzuka. The Pantzuka. My
1: favorite story <laughs> of all time. Yes. So <clears throat> and by, first of all, <clears throat> does Joe Miranda take a part was he a part of the crew associated with the Pantzuka? Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um well he was he he and I worked on the Pantzuka Mark One. Okay. Uh, so he was involved in the initial design of the oh, padzooka. Yes. Yeah. So this was 2002. Joe Miranda and I are, are down at, uh, at Burning Man. And, you know, we're wandering around gawking at things. And one of the things that you see at Burning Man, uh, maybe not so much anymore, but at the time we saw quite a bit of, uh, was males wandering around with maybe a t-shirt on, uh, but no bottoms. And, uh, we called them Donald Ducks.
1: And no bottoms means literally nothing
0: on the bottom. That's right. Well, I mean, the whole area is, it's like clothing optional. You know, you see a lot of people walking by topless, bottomless, whatever. Um, but there seemed to be this year, or that year, that particular year, there seemed to be an awful lot of uh, men walking around with, with no, no pants on. Literally no pants, no underpants. <laughs> and the slang term for them, of course, is Donald Duck's, because Donald Duck wears a shirt, but he has no pants. This, damn, that's weird. Because, you know, Mickey doesn't wear a shirt. Goofy wears a complete outfit. And Daffy Duck, neither. Yeah, that's right. Daffy Duck wears neither. Daisy wears a dress. And Pluto, like Goofy is a dog, but Goofy keeps Pluto, who's another dog, as a pet. That is a weird dynamic. (laughs)
1: It's an odd series of, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, let's not dwell on that. (laughs) Anyway, Donald Ducks. Donald Ducks were wandering around. And uh, Joe and I were wondering, what ought we to do about these? You know, these people are wandering around without any underpants. Um, We should probably give them underpants. We should deliver underpants to them remotely. And so we invented the Pantsuka. There was a guy uh, in the encampment next to us had uh, an air uh, air compressor. So we got his air compressor and uh, a hose and uh, we found this thick, thick cardboard tube and we... uh, it took a pair of underpants, you know, like tidy whities rolled them up inside another cardboard tube that fit inside the larger cardboard tube, and, uh, well, you know, we just uh, powered up the air compressor, and we waited for Donald Ducks to come by, and uh, we'd shoot a, a blast of air into the pipe, <laughs> you know, the larger cardboard tube, and it would fire, this is how the theory went, is that it would fire this this cardboard tube with a pair of underwear in it, and you know, say, here, have some here, Enjoy, yeah. Yeah. So I, I said this was the Pantsuka Mark I, uh, and uh, it didn't work particularly well. You know, it, it needs a lot of air to push something like that out, and it wasn't a particularly good fit. The engineering was engineering was just all wrong. And, and it's a creative environment
1: there, so oh, that's yes. a plus, but it's not necessarily the environment you need for fine engineering.
0: Oh, yeah. That whole place was de- was and is devoted to um, frivolous amateur engineering <laughs> and it's quite something you know the incredible creativity so anyway that was 2002 i went back the next year uh joe didn't that i think that was the the one and only time joe joe ever went um and then the following year i went back uh but i worked on the pantsuka mark ii the pantsuka mark ii uh worked on the uh the aspect of a uh, spring so instead of a, a, a air 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 pressure or air compressor, which made it very heavy and immobile, you know we couldn't carry it with us. So you, I developed, you needed a vehicle. For the yeah, you mess. need in a vehicle, or you couldn't move it around. It had to be plugged in and everything like that. So no, it didn't work at all. So I invented uh, the Mark II, which was a man portable Pantsuka. And that was uh, uh, some lengths of plastic pipe that were fitted together with an enormous honk and spring in the back of it that was pulled back uh, with a sort of metal T handle. And it works on the principle of, uh, you know, a PIAT? Do you remember the, the PIAT? I don't. Uh, the PIAT was. It's a medieval weapon of some kind. Yeah, the PIAT. PIAT stands for PIAT, or Projector Infantry Anti Tank. This is an anti-tank weapon that the British and Commonwealth forces had in World War II, and basically it was a spring-loaded shoulder shoulder shoulder-controlled weapon uh, that fired uh, a shaped charge weapon, uh, a shaped charge warhead uh, about you know maybe 50 to 100 meters, uh, 100 meters pretty optimistically, Uh, and it had an enormous spring inside it, which is what propelled it. Uh, The advantage of that was that you could use it from inside a building because unlike a bazooka or an RPG or a Panzerfaust or anything like that, uh, no rocket motor, uh, so no backblast. So you could use it inside uh, a building or in very close quarters. However, it was very inaccurate uh, and had a really short range. So, um, but still, it used this enormous honk and spring you know, for its uh, motive power. Uh, if you remember uh, the movie Bridge Too Far... So there's the first couple of scenes where the Germans are trying to dislodge the British Paris from the bridge and they're firing back and forth and you see them with this weird-looking stovepipe and they're loading what look like mortar shells into the front of it, but they're not. That's a Piat. So anyway, the Pansuka Mark II was working on the spring load principle, you know, like the Piat, uh, and it also fired a small cardboard tube with uh, a pair of you know, under, underpants rolled up in there. And it didn't have a very good range, uh, but it was uh, it was man-portable, so I could carry it on a sling. Um, uh, on boardgamegeek.com, uh, my avatar on Board Game Geek is a picture of me taken at Burning Man with my pantsuka at sling arms.
1: Right. And you it's terrific,
0: and you appear to be in uniform there as well. It's sort of a homemade uniform, yes. Right. You know, right. uh, lieutenant of some strange Scottish... <laughs> outfit out in the <laughs> desert somewhere, you know balmoral and uh you know insignia and kilt and everything it's so good, um yeah, so it wasn't particularly accurate, didn't have a great range or anything, but it would go off with this enormous crash that really got people's attention right. So. Anyway, that's, that's pretty good. So now, now,
1: was the goal to to hit the individual with the package oh, of underwear? Not to hit I mean, them. You didn't want to hurt anybody. I no,
0: know. no. Well, I mean, it just, it was like, it. it you know, it, it, if, if it hit anybody, it wouldn't even be like throwing it at them. Right. But the idea was is just to sort of like, you know, aim it in front of them, have it land in front of right. them. And, so oh, they, what is this? Yeah. Oh, it's a underwear. Mana from heaven. Yeah, something like that. Right. You know. But anyway, wouldn't you know it, after the field tests for Mark II, uh, Pantsuka and uh, finding out how, how it worked, you know, and, and and didn't work all that well, but still. Um, after that, we couldn't find any Donald Ducks to shoot at. Interesting. I don't know. It's just one of those things that kind of came and went in Burning Man. Right. Either that or they heard about us. Right. <laughs> they, they didn't want to face the Pantzuka. Yeah. Anyhow, that is the story of the Pantsuka.
1: That's great. That's a terrific story. <laughs> I love that story. Now, uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about for this podcast is uh, uh, it would be interesting to hear your top five list of games with insurgencies or involving insurgencies or addressing insurgencies. Mm-hmm. So uh, I understand that you have at least a partial list.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a favorite five. Um, I, I've published, well, I've been designing games for about 25 years. And I've published, I guess, pushing for 50 different titles now. And probably about half or more than half of my work deals with some form of insurgency, irregular warfare, guerrilla warfare, whatever you want to tell it, uh, however you want to term it. And uh, as I was saying to you before, I, I crouch on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> and uh, so there's five, uh, I, I, without much trouble, I, I came up with a list of five, when you asked me about this, uh, games uh, that about insurgency that I found particularly inspiring or that I'd like to steal bits from or just, just really kind of amazed me at uh, the, uh, sometimes the audacity of the design approach. So in no particular order, uh, they are uh, National Liberation Front by Lawrence Harris, Uh, Minuteman, The Second American Revolution by Jim Dunnigan, Uh, The Plot to Assassinate Hitler, also by Jim Jim Dunnigan, Nicaragua by Joe Miranda, and Vietnam 1965-75 by Nick Karp. Uh, Now, that's in no particular order at all, uh, but these are all ones that I found uh, really interesting uh, over time for different different reasons. I suppose chronologically, the first two uh, that came my way were uh, Minuteman and Vietnam 1965-75. Uh, Vietnam 1965-75 was designed by Nick Karp, and I'm happy to say that Nick Karp is here at Consum World Expo 2019 and for the very first time. And I was so surprised to run across him. And there he is with his nickname, uh, with his name tag. And I I had no idea what he looked like. But I just, you know, had to get up and shake his hand. You're one of my design heroes, Nick. So I think he's having a good time here. Uh, But certainly everybody remembers, you know, this particular game. It was a very, very good game uh, on operational counterinsurgency or operational irregular warfare. And there aren't very many games that are pitched at the operational level. There are a lot of tactical games that claim to be about counterinsurgency, but in my view a lot of them are just like other tactical combat games. You got one gang of grubby light infantry chasing another gang of grubby light infantry around the map, it doesn't tell you too much about insurgency. But a game like Vietnam 1965-75, it's pitched at, you know, the battalion, regiment, brigade level and it starts to work on the idea of uh, how units have to have the right posture and composition to be effective in finding and fighting the enemy. Uh, And there's the whole section, uh, or there's, there's the whole aspect of area security pacification, uh, politics, you know, a unit and formation commands, all this kind of thing. So anybody who knows, who has played Vietnam sixty-five seventy-five 75, uh, knows what I'm talking about. It's a, a long, well, the game, the campaign scenario is very, very long, very, very detailed, and uh, has a lot of, of uh, very inspiring stuff in it. Minuteman uh, was something, I was playing it in high school, And what a game it was. It was a Jim Dunnigan game uh, about a second American Revolution taking place about, well, about now, actually, 2020. The game was designed in 1975, was released in 1976 for the Bicentennial. And uh, the future history that Jim Dunnigan wrote about the changes in climate and demographics and the economy and politics of America... Between you know the the eighties and twenty ten or so, uh, which is when you know the which is the framework for his you know fictional future history here, are really really interesting. You know I'm not saying he was a predictive genius, but uh, it's very very interesting to read through it. And the sort of the theory that the uh, the game runs on is kind of derived from the Maoist method in that you have cadres that go out and create networks networks create militias Uh, militias at some point there will be enough militias around that the revolutionary movement will be able to declare the revolution and fight against the security forces on more or less equal terms and so um, strike you know and uh, and gain power so that whole game is this kind of process that's running on a map of the united states a hex map of the united states that's coded for different kinds of urban centers and this kind of thing and this game has all kinds of things in it uh you know subversion and networks and age secret agents running around with goofy code names and all this kind of stuff um and uh it i used to play this one a lot uh with um well with the clash on the headphones, you know, <laughs> like you, you remember uh, Sandinista, the yes. album Sandinista. Yes. So, anyway, some really good stuff in there. That's great, and I don't think uh,
1: we can we can overestimate the impact Dunnigan's had on everything we do
0: yeah well i mean there's another donegan game on my list uh a plot to assassinate hitler which was another wonderful game uh that used a hex map to express political distance and political proximity uh this was a game that was published in s&t and they uh, gave it the box game treatment later actually uh and it was a game design that was way, way ahead of its time. It was very unpopular. People just had no idea what to do with it or what it, no idea what it was symbolizing or what to do in it. Uh, I don't think the game was maybe wasn't all that well developed before it was produced. Uh, but just some amazing ideas in there just uh, from concepts. Um Years, years later, I was very surprised to learn that Jim Dunnigan's original inspiration for these concepts uh, for Plot to Assassinate Hitler were drawn from scrimmage, his football game, you know, his game on football, which was also really, really, really unpopular uh, when it ran in, in strategy and tactics. But there was one idea, uh, among others, in Plot to Assassinate Hitler that was good. It was the idea of loyalty chits. So if you had the loyalty chit, for a particular piece or person in, in, the, uh, in the game, you either knew that you could control him, you know, and try and pry him away from the enemy, or if he happened to be on your side already, you knew that you had his absolute loyalty, and it would be much, much harder to have him, you know, levered away from you. And that was a great idea, and it was something, a concept that they kept trying to load into other games that they would put into the feedback section. You know, there were other spy and revolution-themed games that they would put in as suggestions for people to vote for in their feedback, Uh, but, of course, nobody ever picked up on that later. Um, National Liberation Front was done by Lawrence Harris years and years ago. Uh, Lawrence Harris is the guy who designed Axis and Allies, but he did this National Liberation Front small box game produced I think next best thing to self published, anyway. Among other remarkable things, it has plastic pieces. So the counter sheet is a sheet of rigid styrene plastic with stress lines on it. And instead of punching the counters, you kind of like press and snap the pieces apart. Um, and it's interesting, too, because it has a very interesting mechanism for handling hidden movement. Of guerrilla forces and uh, without any kind of plotted, you know, written down, plotted or simultaneous movement or anything like that. Uh, so that uh, is is a, a careful, you know, that that that's that's something that's really you know really good. Uh, and for the rest of it, it's kind of a you know generic growth of an insurgency. You know, it's in a made up country and this kind of thing. But uh, that's a particularly ingenious design mechanic. Um, oh, uh, I. I Okay, let me cheat a little bit. Number six on my list would be South Africa, The Death of Colonialism, uh, which is another game that ran in strategy and tactics uh, back in the late 70s. It came out in like 1977 or something like that. Uh, If I recall correctly, it was designed by Irad Hardy. And that was an excellent game uh, with a lot of very interesting concepts about uh, seeking... Guerrillas, e- guerrillas evading—you know the how to, you know, the growth of insurgent movements—and uh, because the situation was, you know, the black nationalist movement trying to bring down the apartheid government of South Africa, the South African government player has this additional challenge of trying to keep his economy running so that he can keep uh, enough money to maintain the military to fight against the guerrillas and it's you you know i i played this game a lot just to see how long i could keep the south african army existing without going into kind of a death spiral very very interesting concepts in there and uh the last one on the list uh i would be nicaragua by joe miranda uh, came out in 1988 joe miranda's first professionally published uh game in uh strategy and tactics and uh, it was all about Nicaragua, of course, the Nicaraguan Revolution. So there were scenarios for the original revolution by the FSLN, and then uh, the different uh, stages of the struggle against the Contras. Uh, And it was Joe's first published design, and there is a lot in it. There's a lot of stuff, almost too much. Um, But it's all there, and I'm glad it's all there. And That game was designed as sort of a riposte to a game that had been published a year or two earlier by Victory Games called Central America, designed by a guy called James McQuaid, I think his name was. And I played that game a lot, you know, and it was interesting because it was a game about insurgency uh, that didn't really have any insurgents in it. Because that whole aspect of political warfare or covert warfare, that kind of thing, it just wasn't in the game. Basically, the game boiled down to how many tank brigades do you need to chew your way out of Nicaragua through Honduras and head for the Texas border, Wolverines, <laughs> uh, or to turn it around, you know, how many Marine Expeditionary Brigades do you need to land and chop your way in to. Uh, to uh, to you know to, to the capital city of Nicaragua, just in time to you know to dismantle the SS-20 missiles that are aimed at Texas, Wolverines. Anyway, <laughs> so you know, so the, you know here was this big, expensively produced game. Uh, about Central America, and, and with a nicely researched order of battle and intricate rules for air warfare and uh, and 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 uh, tanks and things like that, and it was all kinetic. It was all about tank battles in the jungle and stuff like that, and uh, it it was just really really disappointing. And uh, so again, here comes Joe with a game that's all about covert and overt warfare, political platforms, uh, you know, uh, propaganda, using psychological warfare to win over social classes, um, you know, uh, foreign power intervention, all these kinds of things. So it was so much of it was uh, stuff that that this Central America game wasn't. Right. Could have have been. Absolutely. Could have been, should have been. but. I don't think ever would have been and so that was Joe's uh riposte to it and as I said his first uh, professionally published game and I found it so inspiring there is so much in there uh and uh it showed me you know that all of these six games here showed me that there were many many different ways to handle these particular topics of uh, and, and aspects of where politics and the military cross paths, which is what I found interesting from the very beginning of me starting to play war games when I was 15 years old, and uh, it was so. All of these games have been really inspiring to me, and really kind of liberating in, in just showing you how you don't need to be tied to one or several or any particular kind of concept uh, that you could just come up with crazy things, you know, crazy ways to approach her to visualize or, or bring concepts to a problem and make it work and make it interesting. Right. It's seeing innovation, right? I mean, that's what you're seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and,
1: and embracing it. Yep. That's, that's excellent. So
0: these are the ones that I've seen and I've <clears throat> found very, very, um, innovative and they were published over, you know, 1975 through to about 1985. And, uh, I mean, those are ones that I found originally, you know, very interesting. There've been a lot of detail, a lot of other games have come out in the meantime on the topic <clears throat> that are, uh, that are interesting in their way, but these are the ones that I found most inspiring.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's the uh, it's the ones you see the, the, that change your viewpoint that make the the, the biggest mark. Indian abyss will always uh, leave a massive mark for me. And um, you know, it was a time when I was coming back into the hobby and hadn't played games forever. So my benchmark was the way they looked when I went to college and stopped gaming. And uh, and and so that was what 1983, 84. And the change between then and and then Volko's, Volko's innovation, putting four people around the table and making us all uh, play against each other and negotiate, and uh, it was uh, you know just brilliant. But that you know, the, I just in the very very much the same way left a mark on me.
0: Yep, that's right. And the common feature of all of these games, um, they're all about irregular warfare, but they're also about asymmetry and uh, just asymmetry of of means and methods and objectives and um, that's that that's what i've always found really interesting in games period is the notion of asymmetry right. so in my design work that's tried what i've tried to done, to do um, over the years is explore all kinds of aspects of asymmetry and how uh you can make a game come together that's enjoyable by both sides uh in completely different ways
1: that. uh tito what about tito
0: oh damn forgot about tito <laughs> that would be number seven <laughs> <laughs> what would you say about tito what's the brief oh boy uh well tito uh i also found really inspiring too um graphically it was crazy you know people thought that redmond simonson had gone nuts uh when he put it together i think he was way way ahead of his time so i stole lots of graphic concepts from tito there were other parts uh in tito that i found really good too that i swiped and put into other game uh games that i'd done uh one thing was uh tito had like a war progress table so step by step you could see how the rest of the war was going in the mediterranean and as the war advanced you know it became more and more likely that there would be a threat of an invasion in the balkans or there there'd be more and more supplies uh, or it would trigger the italian surrender and the german withdrawal and that kind of stuff so just that idea of you know just a table to kind of track progress from what was happening in the rest of the world um and the ideas of uh, you know progression from small units to bigger units to you know sort of like progressive mobilization and the, sort of the interface between very large, very powerful units because you had like Soviet you know combined arms corps you know grinding onto the map, eating it up piece by piece, uh, and yet at the other you know at the other hand you had these tiny little Serbian rifle battalions and stuff like that, so. Yeah, so uh, that was very interesting. A lot of processes in it. You know, I mean, nowadays we would work on it, be a lot more streamlined. And Barry Setzer, of course, is working on a coin system game uh, for Yugoslavia. We talked about, Barry and I were talking about that yesterday for an hour or two, just going over his concepts and, you know... um, menus of actions for the different people so that was good i was happy to see that because if he wasn't doing it i'd be doing something right no i I, every time i go back and think about tito i think about what an
1: opportunity uh, that is yeah very good well uh that's a great note to end it on and i appreciate uh, as always uh, brian love to talk to you and hear your stories and and your thoughtfulness and your craft and uh look forward
0: to playing some more of these games so thanks for taking the time thanks so much harold it's been fun
1: so that's a wrap for this podcast thanks for listening we greatly appreciate it if you would post a review on itunes I'll publish some notes and references on my website, ConflictSimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games group on Facebook. Leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Vesalia, California based band, Slow Season, for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Brian Train. And that's it for me. As always, I'm patiently awaiting the next episode of Wild Weasel, and I'll be back soon.